It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because This Might Get Uncomfortable starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lordson. Dotsie, I think there needs to be an explanation of something. There's been this thing that you've been sharing with me for the last few weeks that a lot of people don't know about. I think it needs to be brought into the light. That's something called robot mode. Robot mode. And before you tell everyone listening, the dear listeners of this might get uncomfortable what robot mode is, I think it bears a little bit of context. So at the time of recording this podcast, we have been dealing with the ins and outs, the strangeness and confusion of so many things in human society. One of those biggest things being our quarantine period during COVID-19. And a few weeks ago, I was speaking to Dotsie and just sharing with her how the, the one big thing that I've been kind of dropping the ball in terms of my health and wellness has been movement and fitness. And I just, to be honest, I have barely moved my body during the three plus months we've been going through this. And Dotsie, you kind of gave me a pep talk. Uh, I wanted to start off this episode by talking about robot mode. You're like, you just got to get a robot mode. So will you explain, first of all, what the heck is robot mode for those of us who don't know? And more importantly, the mindset of getting our butts up when we're, I don't know, kind of down and despondent and feeling unmotivated. You go into robot mode and why it's important, please. Okay. Well, I don't know how emotionally healthy robot mode is. So this is not to be construed as any kind of medical advice because it's probably not the best in terms of always being in, in robot mode, but it can, I think, bridge the gap when you're having a tough time doing something that you know that you should be doing and something that you actually really want to be doing. And Prior to this, when our world flipped upside down, I know that you were really engaged in physical activity on a daily basis. I mean, you're a fit dude. You look fit to me anyway. So if you're not, you're pulling it off. And so when we had a chat and you said, I'm just not really doing anything. And I shared with you that in the beginning of COVID, I was feeling that same way where I was just kvetching about, I couldn't do all the stuff that I wanted to do. I couldn't get to my yoga class and I couldn't go to my spin class and, you know, just blah, blah, blah. And I got into kind of a bummer state, which is typical when you're not getting the endorphin release that you're used to and you're not getting any dopamine hits because you're already kind of down a little bit because there's this new normal that all of a sudden we are supposed to be able to just bounce right into and be okay with. And there's actually a quite a steep learning curve with coming into a new normal that none of us have ever has ever been normal for us before. And so I just kind of decided to dip back into my training days, which I used a lot of robot mode. It's really just autopilot. It's really just kind of bringing into your consciousness and taking action on what you know that you want to do and not listening to all of the complaining about it or all of the reasons that your brain is giving you that you maybe shouldn't do this or shouldn't do that and just doing it. And just by the sheer ability to just take action in kind of autopilot mode, before you know it, you're doing activity and you're moving your body in our case, right? Because this is what we were talking about, lack of exercise and, and not moving our body like we used to in, during the beginning of COVID. Before you know it, 
a week's gone by, four weeks have gone by. I think I'm like in week 14 now of I decided to do something completely different than what I was doing before. And I decided to took the cars out of the garage, turned the whole garage into a gym and just decided to get strong in areas where I didn't even know I had muscles before. I had to just completely change it up and then just robot mode it every day. And I just go, if tomorrow at four, I'm supposed to be in the garage, robot mode is, Dossie, put your shoes on. Dossie, put your shorts on. Dossie, put your hair in a ponytail. Dossie, get a water and walk outside and start. And it is not any more complicated than that. Okay. So people might be unfamiliar with you, Dotsie, and not knowing that you have this Olympic background and a champion athlete and the founder of Switch for Good, all the cool stuff that you have done and are doing. So sometimes there might be people who are like, oh, well, that's easy for an Olympic medalist to say, <laughs> you know, of like, you've had robot mode for your whole life or your entire training for an average person. Like, and I've talked to Whitney about this a lot. And I may have mentioned this to you too. My biggest struggle when it comes to moving my body, even though I know it's good for my mental health and my emotional wellness, because you, you mentioned the dopamine and the endorphins and everything. And to me, it's like, oh boy, sometimes I'll line up the shoes and I'll line up the workout shorts and I'll put the basketball by the door and whatever the case may be. And then I'm just like, ah, oh, it's the mental thing and the boredom side of it for me. And some other people may feel this way. It's, it's not necessarily the physical exertion, right? Or pushing our body or exploring those physical limits, but it's almost like the resistance. And we talk a lot about that on this podcast is the resistance. Stephen Pressfield talks a lot about this in The War of Art. Whitney and I are big, big fans of his work. My resistance is boredom. That's my sort of demon when it comes to working out and moving my body. It's like, oh, you're going to shoot hoops again today. Oh, you're going to go lift weights again. I'm just curious, like, when it comes to repetition and boredom, how the hell do you push through that resistance? Or is that something you don't experience? Well, no. And I could certainly turn this to robot mode that has nothing to do with athleticism or moving your body as well. I mean, I've never been the executive director of a nonprofit. I have no history in it whatsoever. And when COVID came about, of course, different people on the team were struggling in different ways. We were trying to figure this out. And I had some frustration around the fact that different people were struggling because I didn't know exactly what to do. I'd never been in this situation before. And robot mode helped me there because I just said, okay, just take one moment, one day at a time, do what you can in that day, and we move on to the next. It's almost a complete release of everything that you think you should be doing and that you've heard might work as a leader or somebody has told you that work or some book that you read and just kind of go into what you know, like I'm just going to be helpful and loving and encouraging. And that can be robotic if you let it be and just do that and then go into the next day. So I think if you are feeling stagnation or boredom or something in the physical realm or in the other realm that I was just speaking of, I think it's changing it up. Like I didn't know what I was doing to help people through this time as a leader. I, I really had no idea what I was doing. And I just did it, just changed, kind of changed it up. I was giving suggestions. I don't even know if they were good, but it was like just doing it, just being there. And a lot of that, it does reach back to my training, whether it's physical or not. It's just like, I know that this has to get done today or I'm not going to reach the eventual goal. So with Switch for Good, if our goal is to eventually have a dairy-free world, if I don't do this today and people don't stay healthy and don't have a support system, we're not going to reach the goal at the end. So this has to happen today. So maybe it's just breaking it up more and just leaning into a different aspect so it's not playing hoops at all. 
right? It's not what you thought you think you needed to get fit because then maybe you're overthinking it too much. Hmm. This is an interesting kind of turn, right? Because there's almost like this predisposition for all of us, I think, to look at certain, I don't know, influencers or champion athletes or avatars or people we hold in high regard. And Whitney and I talked about this on a previous episode, actually, that we'll link to in the show notes at wellevator.com. It's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com about the danger in sort of aping or taking someone else's path or their formula or the way they built their business or the way they run their organization and trying to imitate them too much. And I think this is one of the most challenging things for us as humans, right, is wanting and desiring, I guess, a certain level of success or our, our bodies to look a certain way or a certain aesthetic or a certain, I don't know, whatever it is that we have in our desires, but then maybe leaning too hard into, okay, you know, how did Michael Jordan do it? How did Mike Tyson do it? Whoever our avatar is and trying to duplicate their success word for word, line by line, shot by shot. But in doing so, sometimes I think we might lose the vision or the, I don't know, authenticity of who we were meant to be in the process. There's a fine line there. And for me, sometimes when it comes to certainly working out or doing things for a long time, it was like, well, well, you're a dude, you're supposed to go lift weights, right? If you really want to be masculine, you need to go lift. But the truth is like, I don't really like lifting. And there's other forms of activity that my body and my mind like better. But for a long time, it was just convinced by this sort of cultural stereotype that like, if you want to be a dude and you want to be manly, you got to go lift a bunch of weights, you know? And so I, I think a lot of it's overcoming well, I mean, a lot of it, if we all talk about the reasons we've all gone vegan or go dairy-free or the things we do, I think a lot of it has to do with maybe looking at and overcoming the programming we've had over the course of our lifetimes. Yeah, most definitely there for sure. I think I struggled a lot in the beginning in trying to look at successful leaders and successful organizations and, and you can get a little wrapped up in like systems, EOS or traction or lead with heart or, you know, there's all these like ways and makes you feel kind of organized because there's like step by step. But I just finally realized like I'm doing exactly what you guys were saying and it just didn't feel authentic to me. And I think I became a better leader when I just do me and not try to follow in some sort of systematic footsteps of something else or someone else or some other tool that somebody said, this is exactly how it should unfold. Because then it, it just feels, I think to the team, it feels just like that, right? Like some sort of like systematic process that you're trying to push them through. So I see exactly where you're going there. And you, you mentioned like the uncertainty and the discomfort of not really knowing what you're doing as a leader, which I think, first of all, thank you for being so vulnerable about that, you know, whereas, I don't know, I feel like a lot of people are like, I know exactly what I'm doing and I'm going to fake it for camera and on social media, act like I know everything. But you admitting that you going from a, this extremely successful Olympic career, which I, I definitely want to talk about that to running a nonprofit, trying to get people to move away from dairy. I mean, that's, that's a big jump, right? It's like you're going from a champion athlete to running a big nonprofit organization. That sounds like scary as hell. To be honest, like, have there been times you've been terrified? Like, what the hell am I doing? This is going to crumble. This is going to fail. Like, have you experienced those times? And if so, how do you emotionally cope or deal with those moments? Almost every minute of every day. I have never in my entire life been faced so intensely with my own inabilities and insecurities and inadequacies than running this organization. Most days I'm like, I hate this. I hate this. And I think I finally realized it's because I was trying to do everything. I was trying to be everything to everybody. 
And I was trying in my own way to pretend that I was already an expert in all of these different areas that I'm not an expert in. And I'm a very long-suffering personality, very long-suffering. And so I just was, that is definitely transferred over from, well, I think it's just me, but it it definitely was a part of my athletic career and part of what made me successful as an athlete was the long-suffering. And so I had this gritty nature in the beginning where where I was like, I'm going to do this and it's I'm going to suffer the whole way and it's too bad if you don't like it and just rawr. And that was most days. And I have finally in the last few months, finally, as I've traversed through this and gotten incredible mentorship and sage advice from just different people that have been in my shoes at different times, right? Because I'm like, I don't know what this is and I want to die and this is horrible and I want to do this work, but I'm so bad at it. And finally realized that, huh, guess what? You're not good at everything. You're not everything to everybody. And that's okay. And find someone who just gets up in the morning for all the things that you feel like you're not good at and you're inadequate in because you don't have any training in and 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 you know have an experience before find that yin to your yang in the organization there are people that get up in the morning and love managing people they love inner team communication they love increasing productivity between team members and as the team as a whole they love everything about human interaction and engagement, and they're very extroverted. All of those things are things that I didn't like, and I just didn't feel like I was skilled at at all. And finding that person has made it finally where I can see some light at the end of the tunnel, like, we are going to rock this. We are going to be here for a very, very long time. And it was letting go of so much and just being okay with the inadequacies that I have and not trying to force myself into, you have to be able to do this, you have to be able to go to do this, and you you shouldn't hire somebody else. I mean, you know, like, you have to do it. You started this shit. You got to follow it up. So I have never felt so supported and so free to now be more of me and offer what I'm good to the organization, which is the only way that we're going to thrive, right? If everyone in the organization is doing what just totally like gets them out of bed in the morning. It's been a massive change, but I mean, for a year and a half, I just beat myself up every day. I think I cried every day too. I mean, literally almost every day. It was not a way that to exist or that I wanted to exist anyway. Well, thank you so much for sharing that because I feel like that's such an important thing for others to hear because we don't usually see that sides of running a business or organization. We we often just see whatever the it's like a PR release, you know, it's like the, all the best parts, the highlights, the things we post on social media, we see the outcomes of something that took a lot of time. And a lot of these things are, there's so much more than meets the eye to them. And until we talk about that more openly, I think a lot of people start to feel inadequate simply because they think that everyone else is doing a better job than they are, you know. But then if we hear the truth, like you're sharing here, then we realize that other people struggle too. They just might not talk about it very often. Yeah. And it's also really good to become comfortable with like just being okay with somebody in the organization or whatever you're running, maybe not liking you all that much or you're not being their favorite person. And I'm not saying because it's I'm a a bad person or they are anything, just not everybody likes everybody else. And sometimes you 
are in an organization and you can all get the best out of each other and the organization can pull the best out of each other and you want to be there and you want to do this, but those people need a different management style. I also realize that I think I'm an okay leader, but I'm a terrible manager. I don't even like to manage would be step one of why I'm a terrible, I'm terrible at it. <laughs> you know, if you don't like it, you're yeah. not. Right. And recognizing that and just kind of releasing like, oh, there's a couple people that like, I'm not their fave. And gosh, I don't know why we struggle with that so much as humans. Like it's painful to think about, oh, so-and-so may not, well, I don't know why that's so hard, but I'm starting to get more comfortable with that and just, yeah, it's okay. I can be a pain in the ass. It's fine. <laughs> It reminds me, Dotsie, of, and this is an extreme example we've referenced a few times on the podcast, but the recent docu-series about Michael Jordan and the 90s Bulls that came out, The Last Dance, and Michael being extremely criticized for his leadership style, which was having physical altercations with people and not just mentally pushing them, but physically pushing them and holding them highly accountable and having his standard of excellence. And if you didn't meet it, you know, he would, quote, whoop your ass. And it's interesting, right? Because you you bring up this idea of perhaps too many of us being a people pleaser or having people pleasing tendencies or wanting to be liked by everyone. But depending on your style or your goals or the outcomes you want, perhaps that isn't the most appropriate or effective way of being. I mean, working with so many different personalities and people in the organization and, and also, I guess, your Olympic teammates, what's been some keys you found to human interaction, because everyone's got different fears. Everyone's got different aspects to their dream. Everyone's got different proclivities or everyone's got nuance, I guess is what I'm saying. So as a leader, as a teammate, as a boss, how have you found adjusting your way of reaching or motivating or connecting? And and how do you alter that from person to person? How do you read that? Well, I have a bit of a bulldozer type of personality. I've definitely been told that before. And I can see myself when I get into that mode of just like productivity. And we had support very early on in the organization. And I just felt this immense weight from that. And so I was just pushing, I think the team just, it's so hard. That was not good for any of us really in the beginning. And people just, they want to be heard, right? They want to be validated. They want to know that they matter, especially in, if you're doing something altruistic, then you have that type of personality probably and that type of heart that's like, I just want to know that I'm just doing something good today to add to this overall mission. And so I've learned to just stop, take a fucking breath for a second and speak to people. How are you? How was yesterday? How are you feeling during this period of time? And truly, authentically, obviously wanting to connect with them. I am an extreme introvert. And so I tend to not necessarily like that's not my first line of action is necessarily that, especially in kind of like a workspace for whatever reason. I want to have either really deep, rich, intimate relationships and friendships with one person, or I can speak in front of 5,000 people. (laughs) I can relate to that. (laughs) Introverts are that way, right? I don't want to have a Monday huddle call with the six of us (laughs) on there. No small talk. <laughs> and no small talk. I know. And that is a big problem when you don't do well in any of that. It, it's kind of, I'm like, am I just a, just a curmudgeon? I'm like, what is that? <laughs> oh my God. No, I think that's something I've felt too. And I think a huge part of it is, is we as a society to have, I think there's a, an awakening and awareness happening now 
about introversion versus extroversion, but a lot of extroversion is rewarded. And I've struggled for years with those same challenges because I didn't understand why my energy was being drained or why like at events, I would get to a certain point and I just wanted to leave. And I felt like embarrassed and ashamed of those qualities of mine until I realized that's part of being an introvert and how we manage our energy. And, and so we just have to kind of learn how to use our energy to the in the best ways possible. Just like you were talking about too, about you're realizing you don't like to manage unless you don't feel like you can be good at it because it's not something that you enjoy. And so it's a lot harder to like become good at something that you don't even like to do in the first place. <laughs> and I feel like that introversion versus extroversion thing, the more I learn about it, it's easier for me to tap into my strengths. And so I'm a big fan of any like strength assessments, you know, <laughs> like one thing we've talked about before is the four tendencies. Have you heard about this, Dotsie? The four tendencies of, I don't know yet. It's called The Four Tendencies. It it was um, a framework created by Gretchen Rubin, and she has a book about it, and you can take a quiz, and it helps you identify your tendencies, which is like how you tend to act, how you tend to perceive the world. And so, for example, I'm a questioner. So reading that book really helped me realize that I love to ask questions and I shouldn't be ashamed of that because that's the way my brain works. So just like that introversion thing for much of my life, I felt kind of embarrassed about how much I liked questions and I didn't know how to explain to people why I was asking them. So people have become very frustrated with me in a lot of situations. And now that I have understood it through that framework, it's now I can like explain why I'm doing something and help other people better stand me. And Jason is a rebel. And that helped me better understand Jason because we would often clash because we had these different tendencies. It's easier for us to work together and communicate with one another the more that we know. Just like the five love languages has helped people in their romantic relationships, the more that we can understand our working abilities too are just like social skills, I think that helps us thrive and maneuver through the world in a stronger way. I would love to read that. I think any type of clarity, right, on like the, the whatever the intricacies of our own personalities is like so freeing and helpful. I mean, just going through knowing I'm an INFJ and what each of them mean, and that's, it unlocked like what I think was a lot of shame before in not knowing why I was behaving a certain way, but just not really being able to behave another way because that's just me. And in group settings of any kind, like right before COVID, I traveled to Florida to speak in Orlando at this thing called the Impact Forum. I was speaking with Louis Facios, the director of the Game Changers. And the day before was just kind of other people were speaking and it was incredible networking scenario. I mean, Brooke Shields was speaking, Chris Evert, Deepak Chopra, I mean, all of these people and all these people, and it was this extraordinary, literally probably one of the best networking situations I could be in. And I escaped out the kitchen door to the hotel. <laughs> that is me. I'm so I can relate to that so much. And I, I love talking about this because I'm sure other people listening can relate. I can't tell you how many times I've been to something like that where I'm in the room with somebody that I think is incredible, but... There's just something within me that doesn't even want to expel the energy to go engage. Because for me, it's about small talk. This has just happened countless times. And the last thing I want to do is have small talk with somebody, no matter who it is. 
unless I'm put in a position where like I'm guaranteed no small talk, it's really tough for me. <laughs> We're going to get along great if we get to hang out after this. <laughs> oh my gosh. This is exactly yeah. how but I see, am. That's the thing is I would rather just have a one-on-one and with somebody I feel like that gets me and isn't going to bother. I think part of what I've struggled with as an introvert is just the obstacle of getting out of the small talk. And some people I feel like maybe they're not as sensitive to small talk or they're not even aware of it, you know, like their skills around it. Like you just face these obstacles and it's that awkward feeling of, I really want to get to know this person, but skip all the small talk and just dive in deeper with them. And that's something I still have to grapple with in pretty much any social situation that I'm in. And Jason, you being an extrovert, I feel like you handle these things differently, but you also have those points where you want to escape out the back door too. So how do you manage this being a proclaimed extrovert? Well, I want to qualify it by saying that I wonder if my extroversion or both of your introversions are part of an innate, let's say, genetic predisposition, or they are ways of being or behavioral mechanisms that we adopted at some point in childhood. And and I say this because I think part of my extroversion was a way to get attention as a child. When I found out that I could make people laugh, when I found out that I could entertain them, when I could find out that I'd bring people joy and, and be the showman, right? Everyone's always been like, oh, Jason, he's the entertainer. He's the show pony. He's the guy that brings the joy. I realized that at a young age. And I think I realized that it was giving me something I wanted. You know, and I've talked about this previously on the podcast of my dad leaving when I was very young and the dissolving of that relationship with my mom. And I think in some ways, first of all, innately, I love bringing people joy. I love having fun. I love lighting people up. But I also think there's a component of, from my childhood, using that as a survival mechanism, that if everyone's laughing and everyone's having a good time and everyone's thinking I'm the life of the party, even when I'm four years old, then, hey, guess what? No one's ever going to abandon me. I'm never going to be left. I'm always going to have somebody to take care of me. So I think it's a very fine line, right, of how we're wired versus maybe how we developed certain behavioral traits based on survival or attention or affection. It's a fascinating subject. But to answer the second part of your question, Wit, I have a threshold too. Dotsie and I met wonderfully last year at the Remedy Food Conference. We got to see each other speak. And I've been doing those kind of speaking appearances for so long over the last 10 years. And it's not just being on stage and giving an hour-long or 90-minute presentation, giving that energy. You know, it's the book signing afterward and shaking hands and kissing babies and smooching and, hey, let's go up to the hotel room, have a hotel room party. Whatever the case is, at a certain point, I hit a wall and I feel so drained by overgiving, right? And that's not anyone else's fault. It's not the fault of the people in attendance or the organizers or the fans, but I think I have a tendency to overgive. And if I overgive and overextend myself, I collapse like a ton of bricks. And I've had to get so much better at that whenever I'm doing events or live appearances because the recovery from that, if I drain my battery and let the battery get too low, it's really fucking hard to rebound from that. Yeah. And we went on a a nature hike because I think we were both in that space a little bit. <laughs> yeah, and it, hey, uh, an introvert and extrovert meet in the woods, and uh, that um, <laughs> you know, it was <laughs> it was it was that though. Because I remember you're like, "Do you want to go for a hike later?" I'm like, "Yes, I do." I know. <laughs> you said it like that too. I was. I was like, "Please, God, yes, let's go outdoors." Well, this also brings up something else, Dotsie, making this 
a timely matter, even though things change so much in between the time that we record episodes and the time that they're released. But we're recording during a big uprising in our country around racism. And one thing that I've struggled with, and I wonder, I think it's partially like related to my introversion, where I sometimes the way that I cope is I listen first before I act and I'll tend to like spend a lot of time evaluating because similar on the small talk side of it, because I don't like small talk, which to me is kind of like fluff and superficial. I really like the deeper, richer conversations. And thus, I'm also very careful about what I say and when because I want to make sure I'm really speaking from my heart. And sometimes it takes me some time to tune into that and to process things. I also feel like I have a people-pleasing element where I'm trying to say the right things. And Jason, I've talked about this a lot on the show. So I'm curious if you experience that as well and how you've been navigating it during this time where there's a lot of pressure and encouragement to speak out your truth right now. But I know for me, I don't want to add to any noise. And so I found it really hard to navigate. Like when it comes to important matters, what do I say and when? And how do I act if I'm feeling like I'm just going to add to a noise and maybe it doesn't even feel worthwhile, if that makes sense? Yeah, I know the processing thing is is like a real thing. I didn't even know much about processing speeds and how they are developed until I on and off do therapy with my husband so we can just keep growing together. And we had what we just call sticky points and then we go see the therapist. And so we had a sticky point like a few years ago and it was not being able to discern, like if, if there was something that was a problem and we were discuss it and I want to say, okay, here's the problem. I'm doing this and you're doing this and then it's not a good puzzle fit. And he needs a very long time to process what we just brought to the table to figure out what to do about it or to, even if we have kind of come to a solution or resolution, like we're going to try this, even just processing that that's how we're now going to deal with this sticky point. And I have a lightning fast processor. And these are, from what I've learned from our therapists, it is very much, these are born into us, right? Things that right? We have some things innate in us that are, we're born with, it's like a computer chip, right? And then other things that are just a collectiveness of our entire lives and everything that we've experienced. But this processing speed, she said, it's, I've never seen anyone change it. It's just innate. And so we've had to do so much work on understanding what each other's processing speeds are, but just the awareness that his processing speed takes longer is a beautiful thing because before I thought he was dismissive and not engaging and didn't really care what I had just brought up because he would be, it's he's silent guy for like 48 to 72 hours. And I'm not even kidding you on that. And the link. <laughs> that, that sounds like me. <laughs> and we figured it out and it's so freeing because now I'm like, okay, I already know, you know, things sometimes just get better when you just know they're going to happen. <laughs> it's just easier to swallow. Okay, now I know he's going to go process. He's not dismissing me and he doesn't not care. He has to process and he usually comes back with something amazing and brilliant, and wonderful. So now I've, I'm like a trained 
animal where I'm like, okay, now I want him to have his processing speed because he always comes back with something better where I'm just like, I want it to be processed right now. And we shake and make up and this is how we're going to deal with it. And then let's go walk the dogs and like go to the park. And (laughs) I don't want to be in the stuff for like 72 hours of this situation. So dealing with what we're dealing with right now, I think it's such a valuable point that so many people have different processing speeds with what is happening, trying to process what's happening. Because first of all, it's really hard to process because it's just absolutely all sorts of awful in all sorts of different ways. And then depending on who we are and how we grew up and our culture and all of that, we have all sorts of other connections to it that feel ugly and uncomfortable and wrong. And as a privileged white person and grew up with a racist as all hell grandfather, I'm having this weird guilt stuff going on. I didn't go do anything four days ago or five. It's so bizarre. And, and I feel ridiculous like, I'm not going to say that out loud, except for on this podcast. You were talking about social media. Like, social media is very weird when stuff like this happens because part of it, it's helpful for other people when vulnerabilities are shown. But then it also, to me, I sometimes, I just feel like it's whiny. And it's like, I'm not looking for people to be like, no, you're great. So I, I just tend to just be like, oh, either talk about something completely different or just take a break. Or it's a very weird space when stuff like this is going on. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting because I can relate to your husband in some ways, but also as as you're describing yourself about wanting to move through things quickly, I'm like that too. So it's like I've got those two sides of me. And I think it depends on my confidence in the given situation. I like to talk things through and maybe it's that's to me feels easier on a one on one basis. And sometimes yeah, I just want to get it all out and hear somebody's feelings. And then I have to be patient for their own processing speed. Maybe the difference here is that we're moving through this as a country and a world. And so there's so many different opinions. And most of us aren't doing this in person. You know, we're trying to communicate through Twitter and Instagram and things are getting misinterpreted or, you know, there's all of these extreme different reactions and opinions. And so it's like, I think the processing for me is weeding through all of that and then trying to make sense of how I feel when I can agree. And it's like I'm trying to cherry pick from all these different perspectives if, to help express myself. And I think also as an introvert, and again, maybe it's not an introvert thing, but I, I feel it kind of aligns with that feeling of like, I want to be really mindful of what I'm saying and Sometimes it just takes that time. And just like when I walk out of a room, it's not that I don't want to be in there socializing. It's just that I'm looking for a different experience that I don't think I'm going to get there. And it can feel so overwhelming. And maybe some of the reasons I will leave a big room of people is that I just feel so overwhelmed. I need to take a break. Just like you and Jason were talking about with like your nature walk. It's like you have to step away. But the trick is just like a relationship if you step away for too long and that person doesn't realize that you're going to come back, maybe they're afraid you're going to abandon them. And I wonder if that's what's happening right now is that are certain people afraid that it'll never get acknowledged and it won't be addressed and that everybody's just stepping away out of convenience. So it's for me like figuring out how do you share that you will address it and how do you hold yourself accountable? I mean, I feel like the same thing could even be attributed to dietary changes really on a different level. Each of us have advocated for the plant-based diet and vegan ethics. 
or just the different elements of what we're eating and how. And a lot of people just aren't ready for it. You know, I personally went vegetarian overnight. It was really easy and fast for me. But a lot of people don't operate that way. And so I've had to learn that people make dietary changes at a different pace. And the trick, though, is some people say they're going to do something and then they never do it because they get lazy or they get forgetful or something else becomes a priority. So it's like finding that balance. How do you encourage somebody while giving them that space to do things in their own time? I'm curious what each of you feel about that. You know, I think with this, with what we have going on right now, with this just destructive violence, I think I'm so conditioned and probably this is part of the reason why I leaned into this movement. I feel like we can really take action on our belief systems and share that with the world every day. What do we always talk about? You can make that decision three times a day to make the world a better place. And I am struggling so much with this. I don't know what to do in two hours about what's happening out in the world. I don't know what to do. I just don't know what to do. It's kind of a frightening feeling and it's a stagnating feeling because I'm used to, we all three are activists, so we're pretty used to taking action. And I feel like, how am I going to do something that really is going to help someone or some people and really matter? And I just don't know what that is. And I'm that feels more stagnating than anything. And then I tend to draw back and that's a whole nother conversation on like, well, you know, and I don't know what I'm doing right now, like not really leaning in and because I, I can't figure out, but that I've been having to start to realize in the next, in the last few days, like there isn't always a direct action and a directive on what that action is every single time something happens, right? Like, I mean, you can't always just do something that very next day that's going to make a difference. And that's like, okay, too. I mean, in part of it's like, oh God, who do you think you are? Like, how am I going to do something tomorrow to change the, you know, it's like, I like the feeling of that because say what we're kind of conditioned in, in the movement we're in, you know what I mean? And I just, I like that action oriented approach where I'm like, no, you can do something every day. And here's how, I don't know that there's how on this one. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people are looking for that how, and then there's a lot of different opinions on the hows. And and then I personally get overwhelmed with all the information. So then I have to like spread it out and revisit it. And it isn't a speedy process in some cases. And I'm sure people feel that way about eating less animal products or cutting them out entirely. It can feel incredibly overwhelming. And I'm curious how you feel like the robot mode plays a role when it comes to things like this. Is that something that you go into when it comes to whether it was COVID-19 or the current protests and again, like the uprising that we're experiencing right now? I have no idea. I don't know. It could be. I haven't figured it out that yet though. If there is a place for robot mode, if there was <laughs> robot mode in this, it's just like love more. And, the, and you can be robotic about that if you have to be, right? Like it's literally just I don't know, taking action on reaching out with love to people you haven't talked to in a while and people that you talked to yesterday and people that you don't really like very much and probably maybe don't like you so much. I'm just, you're on my mind. I don't know. I've been randomly doing that, but I think it's selfish because self-serving because it just makes me feel better. Like maybe I'm doing something, but I don't know. I don't know. 
Yeah, I think that's true too. And and that's a big conversation right now online is the balance between are you doing something for a reason that serves others or are you doing something just to prove that you're doing something because that makes you feel better? Yes. I think they started labeling that searching for a cookie is the way that I, I saw people referring to it this week is like, oh, are you doing it really, I guess, about intent, right? Is are you doing it? And it's hard to read people. I mean, this is hard, this without getting into judgment mode, especially if we don't know a person personally, it's hard to read that, isn't it? I mean, whether or not someone's quote, looking for a cookie, like, oh, you did a good job, activist. You did a good job. You, you posted the thing we wanted you to post or doing something with the genuine desire in your heart to create change and create progress and create equality. It's hard to read that right now. And I think to Whitney's point, we're getting bombarded with so much information and facts and videos and reports and Instagram stories. And and it's hard to know, as you said, Dotsie, like what to do moving forward that is going to be effective because you have all of these voices, many of them contradicting one another, that it's almost like at a certain point, it becomes harder, I find, unless I go away and turn all the devices off and get quiet at a certain point to listen to my own heart, and my own intuition. Because I feel like at a certain point, I'm getting affected by so many of the different voices and the reports and the, you should do it this way. No, you shouldn't do it this way. Oh, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to cancel you. I don't know. I was, just, I was just talking to Whitney earlier today that if I can speak from my heart and trust my gut and intuition and speak and act from that place, then I know I'm doing the best I can in the moment. And that's all I can ever do. It's all any of us can ever really do, right? I think so. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, we're just inherently always in self-preservation mode. It's just how our DNA was set up. So it's okay to do some, something nice for somebody and for you to feel good after you do it. I mean, it's better than doing something violent to someone and feeling good after you do it, at least for that. <laughs> so that's okay. Because it, if it feels good, you're going to repeat it. Yes. Good point. Good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think we're certainly seeing that on the other end of the spectrum with the looting that's been happening. And I mean, that that's my perception, at least. Again, I don't know <laughs> exactly what's happening. There's only so much that we know from media coverage, unless we're on the ground witnessing it. And then even in that case, it's really easy to make assumptions about people's motivations and not look at the full spectrum of who they are as people. And that's, that's what I've been really practicing over time is finding the humanity in every individual, regardless of what their actions are showing. I mean, Jason and I talk a lot about the cancel culture and I don't want to engage in that because I feel like people deserve second chances and we should, you know, if, if someone messes up and they're willing to do things differently in the future, we should give them the opportunity because what does that say about humanity if we don't? If we just write someone off entirely, that's probably a part of the roots of racism as well as like making all these assumptions about somebody based on what they did once or what somebody that looked like them did. And we just get into that mode. And I think that's also part of self-preservation. It's like we're trying to protect ourselves from getting hurt. And if somebody hurts us or we're offended by them, it's so much more convenient. It's easier to just like say never again and cut them off because it's a protection thing. But I think the real work is when we can give people second chances. I mean, the same thing is true in relationships too. I mean, as you were saying, it's tough. Relationships are hard work, you know, and going to therapy is part of you working through things and understanding each other and having better tools, 
learning on your communication. And not everybody does that. Some people just end relationships as soon as it gets tough. And that's, it's like, I want to promote the hard work. And as you were saying, coming back to the love, because that's ultimately one of the biggest answers to any problem is how can we be more loving to other people? Like for an example of this, a, a friend of mine sent me a Instagram video of somebody taking a picture. I'm not even going to go into the details, but basically it made it look like they were doing something just for an Instagram picture because as soon as the picture was done being taken, the person like walked away from the situation. I looked at that and I was able to see my own growth because in the past, I would have been like so judgmental and I would have felt like, gosh, this person's so awful. They're just trying to get validated. They're just trying to get a good Instagram image. And I still have those thoughts, but where my... (laughs) Thanks for the honesty there. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's not like those thoughts aren't there, but they're quieter. And I've noticed I've created like a thought pattern that if I think those things, or maybe instead of thinking those things in some cases, I start to realize that I don't know the full picture. And I like making a judgment on one moment of somebody's life just feels so unfair to them. I wouldn't want somebody to judge me for a weak moment in my day. You know, like, are they going to judge me for five seconds of what they see of me? Like, I'm sure a lot of us do weird things a few seconds each day. (laughs) Do we want our whole character to be defined on that? I hope not, because then (laughs) I would be characterized as a very grumpy, irritable person, which you've you've both seen me. I mean, Whitney's seen it more, Dotsie, but you've seen me exhausted and slightly grumpy. And like, if you're like, wow, J-Ro, he's tough to work with. He sure is grumpy. My reputation would be shot. Not working with Chef Grumps Magoo over there. Yeah, good Lord. Let's not hope that there's a, any kind of ability in the future and when the future is robot mode for everyone, and just in general, we're all robots that we have can take snapshots of people when they're at their worst. I wanted to actually loop back to something really quickly, Dotsie. We talked a little bit about the nature hike in Washington State last year where we both really got to bond with each other and get to know each other on a deeper level that's given birth to so many great collaborations and friendship here. You said something on that hike that I want to bring up It's something that Whitney and I have talked about, but I also want to just kind of reopen the conversation. We were talking about you as a champion athlete and an Olympian and someone who is known for having so much success and excellence in your sport in cycling and and how you've worked with other athletes and pro athletes, big time people, and this struggle to find meaning and purpose and new identity after the pro sports playing days are over. And you mentioned to me how difficult from a mental health perspective it is for a lot of men and women who have had incredible success and and championships and awards and tons of money and the playing days are over the competing days are over the olympian days are over and and then all of a sudden it's like who the hell am i and that really really stuck with me when we were talking about the mental health side of it and in terms of identity in terms of purpose and finding meaning in one's life First of all, A, did you struggle with that when you chose to end the chapter of your Olympic career? And observing other friends and collaborators and other athletes you've worked with, how do you think we can find meaning when our perceived identities we've had for decades and been celebrated for and put in the media and and that's no longer a part of our life? How do we make that transition? How do we handle that on a mental and emotional level? I think you have to be really careful to not be addicted to it when it's happening. I think it's in the process while it's unfolding that you 
can get some clarity onto, wait a minute, hold on, who am I really? I'm going to do this certain sport for a specific amount of time because no one's playing pro ball at 70 or in the Olympics that, you know, so that's the reality here and really getting a grip of it while it's unfolding. And I recognize for some that's easier than others because you could be Michael Jordan fame or you could be whoever that, you know, was a great basketball player, but but nobody, you know, so they, they have more pressure, right? But I think that even with more pressure, you have even more of an opportunity to not let that feed into your character and become a part of who you actually are needing that. So the athletes that I've seen, and it is, it's rare for the ones that to be able to actually do that, who have been doing it since they were very, very young. And I was just really lucky in that I found cycling so late. I was 26, really, when I first picked up a bike. So I had an entire life and career before I even picked up a bike. So the bike was a long stop. I mean, it was like a 14-year career, but I never was steeped in my identity as an Olympic athlete. And well, and not till the end. I mean, I, I wasn't in the Olympics for 14 years. It was once, you know, so just even as a pro athlete, but my identity never got just even really, it was connected to it during that period of time, but I wasn't steeped in like, oh, this is who I am as a person. And so I think that was just luck that I found it later. And I just didn't even really have to process with that. But I think that people, because of the society that we live in and that sports heroes become heroes and they are, there's something, this whole ulterior personality that they're supposed to live up to, whoever we think they are and want them to be is really unhealthy for that person. And so, and it's not easy when you're young, right? And you're getting all that fame. I mean, think of like gymnasts or something where it's happening to them when they're 12, 13, 14, 15, and, you know, on top of the top step of the Olympic podium at, you know, 15 years old, it's hard to imagine how you would ever come out of that not being your identity. I mean, we watched Michael Phelps go through that, right? It just, he didn't have any other identity than being an Olympic swimmer with medals hanging off. And he's been so open about the very deep dive that he went into depression and substance abuse with that. So I guess it takes good friends and family, but knowledgeable friends and family, right? To be able to say, hey, this isn't who you are. This is just what you're doing for a period of time. And you're really, really freaking good at it. But you will wake up one day and this won't be what you're doing anymore. And which means it cannot be who you are as a human. It's profound because it goes, first of all, I think it goes against the cultural narrative of pick a thing, dominate at it, make a ton of money, be as successful as you can, And there's really no conversation in that structure of the societal impetus to what do you do with yourself after you're done doing that thing? And it's interesting, too, you brought up Michael Jordan and going back to that docuseries that just came out, I had mentioned that there was an ESPN interview that came out right around Michael Jordan's 50th birthday. And I've referenced this before on the podcast, but I think it's poignant, right? Because, I mean, he's as famous and influential as you can get in, in the world period. But that even years after, 10 years after he retired, because he retired from the NBA in 03. So this came out, yeah, in 2013. He had just turned 50. And he said he was still struggling 10 years after he retired to find meaning and purpose and his idea of success because he was so wired and probably still is to like, he wants to go out into the court and dominate and crush people. And the satisfaction and the drive and the, the passion he got from that. But even in his business ventures and owning the Charlotte Hornets and being a billionaire, even he at that level still struggles to find meaning and purpose and validation. It's like, wow, you hear that? It's like, damn, 
I don't know if it's a cautionary tale, but maybe in a way it is of like, if we link ourselves too much to being this one thing, and then we physically can't be that one thing anymore for a litany of reasons, do we let it destroy us psychologically? I mean, really, I think it goes back to how do we set up a system, not just with athletes, obviously we're talking about athletics right now, but anything. I mean, even me, when I think about hanging up my knives and not being a chef anymore, which I do think about sometimes, right? I mean, I've I've done a lot, I've accomplished a lot. There's other things I would want to do sometimes. It's like, are people going to take me seriously? Are people going to want what I do next? I don't know. It's a struggle even I go through sometimes. And so I don't know. I just wanted your opinion on, on personally, you know, how you dealt with it and, and what came up for you in that process. But it sounds like you you handled it with a lot of grace. Well, it wasn't any grace. It just, I, it I mean, wasn't. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't something that haunted me. I mean, you know, just, it just, what I, and I think it was because it was later, but in life and, you know, I had had a whole career. This was a career. And then I knew what I wanted to do after it when I, you know, moved over plant-based by a couple of years before Olympics. I mean, it, it became very, very clear to me in those moments that, this was something I'm going to spend my life fighting for. I didn't know how, I didn't know anything it looked like. And I definitely had some years like all of us where I would, couldn't find my footing and I didn't know if I was doing it right. And I wanted to do more and do better and all that. But my identity was not professional athlete. Like it, it just wasn't steeped in that. That wasn't who I was. And I think too, you know, when we look at some of the greats, I know that I've been around some of the greatest cyclists to ever live. And there is a very specific personality type and they're very singularly minded and there's quite a bit of autistic type of pieces to their personality where it's like they're so brilliant at this one thing, but everything else, especially dealing with the world and communicating and not just the public, but just even communicating with a teammate or something is so difficult for them and it is such a struggle the best female cyclist that's ever lived is homeless and lives under a bridge in Seattle. And that would be the perfect example of just that there was this one thing and that that's kind of autism in it, right? In its full sense, that's so kind of amazing and wonderful. If you can find that one thing, you are the best in the world at it. <laughs> but everything else around that, including your life and your relationships and happiness and everything else is really difficult to do. Like just doing life is difficult, but whether it's being an engineer or an athlete or a seamstress or a business person, right? Like if you can find that one thing, some people find them and some don't, but that's what I have found to really be the case with the ones that have the biggest struggle afterwards is not only was their identity steeped in that, but there was no other option for them not to be steeped in that identity because that was their thing. And they were better than anyone ever to have lived. I mean, it's that's pretty profound. And how are you the best at something that better than any human ever? Well, your entire self, physical, mental, emotional, your entire psyche, everything you are is built around being able to do that one thing at the highest level. And then when that's gone, I mean, there you have it. It's like you can't do anything else. There's not like an option B. Wow. If we could backtrack for just a second because I, I don't know the, the back end of the story. You said the greatest female cyclist who have has ever lived is, am I correct, currently homeless under a bridge in Seattle? I don't know this. What is this all about? Well, I mean, I, I don't really want to say who it is, but I just think that's privacy for her. She was a bit before my time. I don't know her well personally. I have a teammate who knows her very well personally, but it was exactly what I was just describing. She had this just one thing that she was just 
out of this world brilliant out and and somebody will beat her time some have right we, i mean you you progress in sport but really for that time in what she was able to do in comparison to now and what people are able to do and she just couldn't ever function outside of that so when it was over it was like life was over i'm not here to judge. maybe she likes what she's doing i mean you know that's a whole nother i don't know it's, it's none of my business nor it is for me to judge of course not but most of us would say it's pretty rough existence to not have a home or know where your next meal is coming from so yeah i mean i can relate in the sense that i mentioned this on the podcast i don't know if i've ever told you dotsy but my my dad was homeless for a period of years at the end of his life and you know really really difficult seeing him in that position and obviously circumstances being completely different was not a champion athlete or anything like that but i think it's almost like there's this weird cultural myth right of like it's almost this thing that our society tells us that if you push all your chips in right you go all in right we hear all that you got to go all in you got to be fully committed but it's almost like they tell us that as if there is some guarantee of sustained greatness or success or financial prosperity. Like you just got to go all in and then you're going to have all the riches at the end of the rainbow. But not so. This particular tale you're telling us is, I guess it goes back to there are no guarantees in life. Even if you're the best in the world at something, it doesn't guarantee a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow per se. You know, It doesn't guarantee all the things that society tells us it will give us. No, I think it's better to, not that I'm the most balanced person in the world by any stretch of the matter, but I definitely like dig life a lot. And I have always been and always was, I always, I'm like a B plus. I was a B plus student in high school as vice president, not president. I was a B plus student in college. I got silver medal at the Olympics. I'm like a B pluser. I'm not an A pluser. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Like the longer I've lived and the more I really embrace my B plusedness because it's a more balanced way to live. <laughs> the A plusers, I don't know a lot of really inherently truly happy A plusers, but maybe I just haven't met them. But I know a lot of A plusers, I'll tell you that. <laughs> That's such an interesting way to phrase it, actually. I don't think I've heard it like that before, but I can certainly relate. Because I was also one of those B plus people. And with you saying that, I'm like, gosh, maybe I am a B plus person as well. And it's almost hard to admit that if you're somebody that strives really hard to be the best. But like then when you put it in the context of getting a silver medal, like that's incredible. And I think that one thing that's come up a number of times on this podcast is examples of people who have achieved great things and then kind of sat there and said, well, this wasn't as good as I thought it was going to be, or, or now what? And then the depression that can set in when you reach some massive goal and then realize you don't know what's next for you because the goal's over. You know, it's like, it's part of this thing in life where the it's all about the journey. The journey is often the greatest part. And I found myself, even in, in like small personal things, I don't know if you remember this, Jason, but we went to a concert last year and Jason and I, well, I know he remembers this, but I don't know if you remember the specific moment, but I was anticipating this concert for months. I was so excited. And Jason and I actually drove from Los Angeles to Denver, Colorado area. We went on this like huge road trip to go see this concert and we made this whole like thing out of it. And it was like, as soon as I got to the concert venue, I started to feel sad because I thought there was so much joy in the anticipation of it. And I was realizing that within a couple hours, it was going to be over with. And that joy that I had been experiencing for so months was going to be over. I was like, feeling a little bit sad. You know, it's kind of like when you wait in line for a roller coaster, and you, 
you spend like an hour in line at a busy theme park and you get on the ride and it only lasts a few minutes and the adrenaline's gone (laughs) and the excitement's over and you're on to the next ride. And sometimes we go through life just on to the next thing, on to the next thing, looking for the next high. And that can be very destructive. But we can also go to that other place of striving to achieve all the time. And then when we get what we've been achieving for, it becomes incredibly depressing because it's over with and we've done it. And what else is there beyond that? It was like you said, too, about success happening to the youth. I mean, I think that's probably one of the reasons that some young celebrities, stars, big achievers end up in bad places in their lives because they don't know how to handle like the lows in their life after all those highs. Yeah. I think there's a lot of celebration around if you think you're a B pluser out there. Like B plusers are are more focused on the journey, whereas A plusers are focused on like you said, there's that one thing, whether it's excitement of going to a concert or whether it's a goal and then you get there and then what? And then it's, if you're focused on just journeying the journey, which is definitely my story in, in the Olympic sport. I mean, I never, there was nobody in my entire sphere that would have ever guessed that that would be somewhere that I would land at some point in my life. And because I was just doing the journey and doing my best at at every part of that journey, but not just focused on the end goal. Like I have to win gold at Olympic games. I was just, I couldn't believe and believe I was alive to then go to the Olympic games as I had been very sick before. I stood on that podium and you would have thought somebody put 50 gold medals around my neck. That silver medal is the coolest fucking thing. (laughs) I get so annoyed when athletes are so distraught or destroyed because they got the silver or bronze or whatever their problem is. You know, it's like, it was such a cool ending to such a hard fought journey that our team went through. And we were so damn proud (laughs) of that. But in a lot of people's eyes, you know, nobody wants to be second place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's such a great reminder too. And I think it also comes down to not being attached to the outcome. I, I don't know if this is what part of what you experienced, but you were in it for the journey and potentially more focused on that than you were to whatever that journey led you to. And I think a lot of the times when we are so focused on what we want to get out of something, if we don't get it, it's incredibly frustrating. We feel so disappointed But if you're just enjoying yourself throughout the process and unattached to whether you get what you want or you're just not even focused on what you want, you just don't even know what's going to happen. I mean, I've over the years started to feel uncomfortable when people say like, what's your five-year plan? (laughs) I'm like, well, I think there's something to be said around having goals and moving towards something. I mean, especially for our well-being, like having something to look forward to and having structure in your life is really helpful. And it's true with business in general. If, if you don't have structure, things can fall apart. However, I also simultaneously realize I have no idea what's going to happen in five years, let alone tomorrow or an hour from now. If COVID has taught us anything, like it's that the world can change in drastic ways that we're not expecting. We're just not promised anything. So... It's like I found the balance there and working towards things, but not knowing what the result's going to be because I don't really have that control anyways. I think that you and I are the exact same person. (laughs) (laughs) That explains why I love you both. That explains a lot. I feel so... The beginning of Switch for Good, you have people like... Let's be 
take a five-year plan. And I was like, oh, that's cute. Let me just tell you that nothing is going to look the same in next year or in six months or in five days. So I get it. Okay. We want to have some sort of channel to look forward and we want to have goals and stuff, but actually spending a large amount of our time creating a five-year plan, journey plan. What a joke. Like there is no way possible that that is what we will follow. And there is no way possible that we will be the same organization or be doing the exact same things in five years. And we're not making a five-year plan. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's comfortable like to have a plan, right? It sounds nice in theory, I guess. I don't necessarily have anything wrong with it. It it also reminds me of some memes that I've seen going around of people throwing away their 2020 planners. They're like, well, what use was this? I bought it and I used it for a month and now it's completely useless. But there's also a lot of research I've seen about how having plans does help us work through tough emotions and gives us something to look forward to. And we actually talked about this in the episode we recorded recently and how it's not about like not looking forward to anything. It's like letting go of the certainty it's going to happen. So you can look forward to Christmas or any holiday that you're celebrating. And maybe it's just not going to be the way that you think it's going to be that time. And also not like basing your entire life around it turning out the way you want it to. Like you can look forward to the Olympics, but not striving for a medal within it. It's just that the Olympics in itself is going to be fun. Is that kind of how you went into it when you found out that you were even going or you were even working towards that? Like, I'm sure there were so many different stages of your career of like, just getting to go to the Olympics in the first place is probably a huge surprise for you in some ways. Well, yes, from a like a stand back look at my life perspective, for sure. But when you're in it, I mean, you're, you know, I was very aware that I had a really good shot at a certain time. And I was, you're aware of, you're probably going to make the team and you're, you know, I mean, you kind of know. And, and then of course we were underdogs for sure. I mean, the U S team in this discipline of track cycling, you know, there's some giants in countries that this is their religion. The British won the gold medal and those girls are like recognized on the streets like today. I mean, it, it's a whole nother, you know, it's, it's our basketball or more baseball, I think you'd say. But were they in a big documentary like you were? Oh, I'm sure they've done multiple documentaries <laughs> on those girls over in Great Britain. I don't know who they are, but I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying you still got in a really cool documentary regardless. Okay. I'm going to tell them that next time I talk to them. <laughs> <laughs> what movies have you been in? You know, we we're up against these giants like Great Britain and New Zealand and Australia. So we knew that we were underdogs, but we gave it everything throughout the entire journey. So it's an interesting conversation in terms of like B pluser versus A pluser. Like when I'm in the journey of something and I want to reach a certain goal, I behave like an A pluser, but I'm also aware that this is a journey that I'm taking. And I'm aware that I will not be devastated and it will not be the end of life as I know it if it's not reached. I was aware of that. And we honestly thought our very best shot, and this is based off all the World Cups and the two years before, I mean, you know, this is based on a ton of data that we could probably maybe pull out a bronze. I mean, the, the bookies in London had had us at fifth at best, the US team. I mean, we had not beaten Great Britain or Australia or New Zealand for that matter. We had not beaten their A teams ever. So it didn't seem like it was entirely possible, but that's what's so great about the Olympic Games is producing that one moment on that one day 
in that one moment that you're supposed to produce it. And sometimes the favorites falter because they're on this A plus journey. <laughs> so, <laughs> and it's too much. It's just too much pressure. That's what happened to the Aussies, in, in my opinion. We beat them by eight one hundredths of a second to take us wow. to. Wow. It kind of reminds me of Jason. I haven't finished watching it, but one of the early episodes of The Last Stand. The Last Stand? Isn't that what it's called? The documentary, the basketball documentary? Oh, The Last Dance. Dance, sorry. Yes. <laughs> it seems like it should be Stand. But it yeah. is. <laughs> it's a Western basketball film. <laughs> <laughs> Regular old shootout oh. from the three point line. Here we go. <laughs> uh, yeah, but don't remember. I mean, I'm so like basically my knowledge of basketball is like what I've seen from that documentary, Jason. But that was like what they are continuously coming up against is these great teams and coming up against the odds, right? Yeah, and the sustained success, right? Is the whole point of that journey and that docu series was. You had the Bulls who had a three-peat under their belt, and then Michael Jordan retired for 18 months, and then they're going for a second three-peat. And on that level, at least in his mind, and probably the organization's mind from what we could glean from that period, was anything less than a championship is a failure. And it's just such an interesting mindset, Dotsie, as you're exploring kind of this thing of coming into it with an A-plus work ethic, but kind of letting go and letting whatever's going to happen is going to happen because come game day or competition day, all bets are off and even the underdogs have their day and miraculous comebacks can happen and miraculous victories. But I think the overall thing of that series was like, yeah, anything less than another championship was considered absolute failure. And, you know, on the one hand, there's almost a sense of admiration to such a myopically focused all or nothing type of attitude where someone is proverbially speaking kind of bloodthirsty to, to win but then it's like you kind of put your sanity and your mental health and your wellness at stake if you don't do the thing. You know, you have this lofty goal. It's like you reach it great. But if you don't, you kind of in some ways maybe set yourself up for devastation. Or in Michael Jordan's case, since we're talking about that, he used it as anger and retribution. Like I sometimes look at him as an example. And there was that thing in the 90s where I was like, like Mike, if I could be like Mike. And it's like, yeah, he was fueled by a lot of rage and anger and retribution. And he even admits that if he didn't have a beef with someone, he would create a situation to get angry at them and create a feud in his own mind so that he could just dominate them the next time he saw them on the court. Like he would create completely fantastical situations about a person just so he could brutalize them in the game. I'm like, is that a healthy way to go about life? I don't know. I don't know. It's interesting. I don't know if it's healthy. I'm gonna go with no on the health part. <laughs> <laughs> and Jason, I feel like this reminds me a bit of, I'm not trying to speak for you, but more to prompt you in terms of, I've seen you go through those places with yourself where you, you know, you've had some big career highs and you've talked about this in some episodes. And I'm curious, like, do you feel like you used to have that mentality? Like it's all or nothing. I'm going to be the A plus student in this situation or otherwise I'm a failure. And how have you evolved since then? I mean, I, I'm thinking of like a couple instances in my head that I've seen you go through with your career and moments where you were just like all in it and then things didn't go your way and you were devastated by it. Do you feel like you've had to reframe things and have you made progress on that? Like, where are you at mentally and what have you learned through those experiences? 
I think I have had to reframe it for sure because I, I know that for a long time I was in that mindset of whatever my gold medal was, right? Or whatever my NBA championship or MVP, whatever that was for me, I was so psychotically focused on getting that thing that if I were to fall short of my goal and try again and fall short and fall short, it wasn't the falling short. It was the expectations I built in my mind of my own abilities and my own talent to achieve the thing that it's a dual-edged sword for me, right? Because the motivation and the drive to accomplish that thing, the other side of that blade or coin, whatever you want to say, is beating the shit out of myself that I failed. Like you had all the talent, you had the backing, you had the agent, you had the TV network, whatever the hell it was. Like, how could you have failed? You had everything you needed. It was almost like I was in the role of the doer and the artist and the achiever and striving for my gold, if you will, but also playing the role of the stern, overbearing father that would beat up his son for not accomplishing the thing. It was very kind of unhealthy. And I've had to unravel that psychopathy for myself because I realized that it was an all or nothing approach. And if I didn't do the damn thing I set out to do, I would violently beat myself up over failing it. It's taken me a long time. I'm still in the process of letting go of that. Is that where we end the podcast? (laughs) It's like, okay, Jason's going to survive. He's okay. He's all right. (laughs) And with that. (laughs) I was just going to say, you're just talking to two introverts that didn't have anything to say. We didn't want to engage in small talk just to. (laughs) I think in summary, though, and and Dotsie, I love the way you phrased it. I'm an A pluser in reform, learning to be okay with being a B pluser. Like for real. That like I can give my best. And in my heart, if I know I've given my best and given love and given support and come from a place of authenticity, the result isn't what matters. It's that I showed up and I gave and I came from my heart. It's never about the final result. It never is. Yeah. That's a really important lesson. And I don't think that we've really touched upon this or, or of course, haven't articulated it quite like that. And I'm so glad that you brought this to the table because perfectionism is rampant in our society. We have so much pressure. And I actually, have been reading a book recently called Beauty Sick, and it talks about beauty culture. And one of the points in the book that was so helpful for me was the point that we can't all be the most beautiful person in the room. Otherwise, there'd be no such thing as beauty because we'd all cancel each other out or something. I forget how it was articulated, but it made this point of we can't all be the best because then there'd be no such thing as the best. And so if we're all striving to be perfect and get everything right, then it actually just gets rid of the opportunity to learn. And I think that's something that's helpful for me when it comes to being okay with making mistakes because we grow through our mistakes. We grow through our perceived failures. And if we're winning all the time, we're missing out on that like high and low feeling and the adrenaline. And you know, a lot of the times my greatest accomplishments are coming out of my perceived failures or my lows and that feeling of gratitude I have when I go from like a low period to a high period and not like in a manic sense, but more that I appreciate the heights and the small things, you know, like when you you're starved of something like just a morsel of food or a drink of water is like the best thing you've ever had. But if we are getting something all the time, we've always have access to it. We lose so much gratitude for it. It's all about context, right? 
It's all about context. And I think that's a wonderful thing is like the phrase that came to mind (laughs) that I want to wrap with here as we get toward the end of the podcast is average is awesome. (laughs) I want to get a t-shirt that says either I'm a B pluser or average is awesome. It's like, yeah, it's cool, man. I got a moderate house. I drive a Honda Accord. I have 33 size waist pants. Like it's all average is awesome. I don't know. I, I kind of want that to be my new mantra is average is awesome. <laughs> but also like what's so wrong with average? The whole, again, like going back to that quote is that most of us are average. There's an average for a reason. And even if we're not average in all ways, like maybe most of our lives were about average. Like it could be our body weight or our achievements or our, you know, whatever it is. I think it's interesting that culturally we have like this distaste for being average, aversion to being average, like don't be average. But again, like somebody has to be average. We can't all be the best and the outliers. It's literally impossible. I don't think it's, I don't like that t-shirt. How about above average is awesome? (laughs) Average is C. Okay, okay, okay. Above (laughs) average is awesome. Not perfection is awesome, but above (laughs) average is awesome. We'll get those made. New t-shirts from Switch for Good. Get them on switchforgood.org. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're above average. You're not going to be average. Above average height, above average grades. It's fine. Yeah, slight, Yeah, that's fine. Slightly above average. A memoir. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, not my, Maybe it'll be my memoir. Who knows? Um, I get it. Well, we kept you a little bit over time, Dotsie, because I know you, you've got to run to something else. And I just want to thank you so much for going really, really deep with us and sharing so intimately and so vulnerably and so joyfully. Like you, you're just an absolute pleasure. And I, I can't wait for you and Whitney to meet in, re- in real life. That's going to be an awesome sit down dinner. I'm just waiting for that. I can't wait either. <laughs> so yeah. Cool. And no, knowing that we won't have to have any small talk, it's like instantly a relief. Covered it. Covered it. <laughs> Thanks for all you do on this podcast and everything else that you do in your world, making it Thank better. You. Thank you, Dotsie. And if anybody wants to get more information about Dotsie's amazing work in the world. You can find her. Her Instagram handle is at Vegan Olympian and her amazing nonprofit organization is called Switch for Good, helping people to make the transition to a dairy-free lifestyle. You can check out some of the amazing recipes that I created with Dotsie, the Switch for Good Good Bowls. We've got some amazing new projects coming. I love working with her and it's always such a blessing and a pleasure to work with you, Dotsie. So whoever's out there who wants to get dairy-free recipes, dairy-free lifestyle advice, whether you're a professional athlete or regular person just wanting to do better in your life and eat more alkaline and healthy, check out switchforgood.org and on all of the social media handles as well. And Jason, can you list out some of the recipes you made? Because I know there was one of them that I was amazed by. And so maybe we want to get people's mouths watering and entice them. Well, we had a, an array of good bowls. They were around the world good bowls. So Dotsie challenged me in late 2019 to come up with some flavors from around the world. So we've got like a Mediterranean good bowl, South African good bowl. We've got a Latin bowl. We have, oh goodness, a few breakfast recipes. So basically she said, Wasn't hey, I like a sweet, like I'm trying to rack my, there was something that you did and I thought, wow, I have to try that. What was it? Mm, oh, was it the Swedish neat balls? It might have been the Swedish meatballs. No, wasn't that? <laughs> I know, like, wishing I can remember. There was one that I thought, wow, like I can't believe he made that. That sounds so great. The West African? Hmm. Maybe the barbecue. The barbecue is like my favorite because it's so easy Ooh. to make. Gosh, that sounds so good. I don't know. I'll have to make something for you, Whitney, and just I have guess you so. we'll have to find out which bowl it is. But for wow. many palates, apparently, like whatever your palate is, one of the good bowls is going to do it for you. <laughs> so. 
yeah, if you guys want all of those resources, again, look up Dotsy, Vegan Olympian, or switchforgood.org. And for all of the resources, the books, the articles, the documentaries, anything we referenced for you here today, dear listener, you can go to our website, which is wellevator.com. It's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. We're on all of the social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Twitter. And you can also find all of the links to the show notes here. Just go to the podcast section of our website and check out all of the free resources we have for you to stay healthy and well in mind, body, and spirit. Dotsie, you're amazing. We adore you. Can't wait to see you in person again soon. Bye, guys. Lots of love. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 